I'm excited about today's message, and I've titled today's message, I've Got Options. Now, say this with some confidence and some attitude. Look at your neighbor and say, I've got options. Now, for the record, this doesn't apply to marriage. So for you, those of you who just said that to your spouse, let's just clarify that together. I've got options. And to the grammarian in the room, I understand uh, there's a more proper way of saying this statement. I have options. Uh, But if you were sitting in my living room, and you and I weren't trying to be pretentious, and you and I weren't trying so hard to impress one another, we were just being true to ourselves, this is how I'd say it. I've got options. You've got options. Makes me think of a situation that happened a couple years ago. We were living in Minnesota. Our kids were attending a school where they had a system for uh, lunches where you had to prepay a, a tab or an account. As the kids would go through the lunch line, they would pick out items and they would pay a la carte at the end. Each kid was assigned a three-digit number, and when they'd get to the end, they would ring it up, they'd punch in their three-digit number. And a lot of schools have something like this, and our kids, uh, you know, or a lot of schools will at least give you some grace if your child overspends. And so Kristen gets an email saying, hey, just so you know, your daughter Riley is already $15 over her tab. And Kristen was confused by this, Because she had just put money on Riley's tab like a week and a half ago. How has Riley already spent all that money? And so she puts more money on Riley's account. And she thinks to herself, you know, I have been adding money to Riley's account, but I've actually never added money to Cannon's account. I should go look to see where his is at. So she logs in to Cannon's account, and this guy hadn't spent a penny. And so we're like, okay, what's going on with lunches? And so... The kids come home from school. We're sitting down for dinner that night. We're like, kids, what's the deal with the lunch situation? Riley or right away was like, well, you guys are the ones that said God loves a cheerful giver, and I'm out there hooking people up. I'm buying people chocolate milk and extra pudding, and I'm just punching in that code, blessing my neighbor. And uh, it made sense why Riley was overspending. We're like, Cannon, you haven't spent a penny. What's going on? And he goes, oh, dad, I forgot my number. <laughs> and we're like, buddy, we're, we're three months into school. <laughs> Have you not been eating? Why didn't you tell mom and dad that you don't know your number? And he's like, well, I got up there and I froze. And then I just punched in three random numbers. <laughs> and dad, it worked. <laughs> And I'll never forget, I said, well, buddy, you should have told dad. And he said, dad, don't worry about it. I've got options. (laughs) (laughs) And I just have a feeling that there's some family out there thinking there's some punk kid out there who is (laughs) racking up my kid's bill. Cannon's going through the line, you know, God's good, favor ain't fair, right? (laughs) And I love it. I've got options. And I pray that leaving today, you will have Uh, this reassurance that you've got options. A lot of people are concerned with their future. A lot of people are stressed out and worried and taking on feelings of anxiety when it comes to the life that they're living. Kristen recently was reading this book and in it, it started talking about what they now have termed the quarter life crisis. This is a new term for us. All we've ever been aware of is a midlife crisis. But they say now there is a growing pressure on young adolescents and young adults to have their future figured out far 
sooner than previous generations. I mean, just think of some of the things embedding themselves into our culture. Now, as a sophomore or junior in high school, you can start taking college courses. By the time you head into college, you've already got your associate's degree and you are expected to land on your feet much earlier than the previous generations. And in this, it was talking about what they now refer to as purpose anxiety. That, that people have a lot of anxiety when they think about their purpose. Next time you're in a conversation with some young adults, just pay attention to the questions they have to field. Hey, what are you going to school for? What are you gonna study? What kind of job do you wanna get? Are you dating anyone? Are you gonna marry them? When will you have kids? And there is a pressure of like, wow, I, I have to have a lot figured out at an early age. And this is true for every single one of us to some degree, there's an anxiousness tied to our purpose. This is why people read their horoscopes and go to psychics. And this is why people have individuals read their, uh, their palms. And this is why you crack open the fortune cookie thinking, just say something that might affirm what I'm thinking. Uh, because I find that a lot of Christians uh, struggle uh, with some superstition. Anyone like the show The Office? There's that scene in The Office where Michael Scott says, I'm not superstitious. I'm just a little stitious. And, and maybe you can relate to that where it's like, I don't know, I, I'm going through life and I, I love this idea that God has plans for me and that I can live in God's will. Uh, but my goodness, there's uh, a pressure at times and I'm concerned that if I make the wrong decision, I might throw the entire world off its axis and create some butterfly effect and I, I don't wanna get it wrong. And, and wave at me if you've ever thought about God's will for your life, I just don't wanna get it wrong and I wanna make the right decision and I don't know what college to go to and I don't know if I should ask him to marry me and I don't know if I should pay for this or do that. There is a pressure to our future. And today I, I wanna look at something the apostle Paul said in which he gives us some guardrails. And he lays before us some things that can help you and I operate in a space that generates spiritual momentum as we move forward towards God's best in our life. Yet we live with an awareness of in this space, I've got options. I don't need to take on a pressure I wasn't meant to carry. I just get to live in the satisfaction and the fulfillment of chasing after Jesus and knowing if I do the small things like they're big things, he'll do the big things like they're small things. And I can trust in him and I just know he has good intentions in my life. And Paul lays out these guardrails and check out this verse, Colossians chapter three. And Paul says, and let the peace of Christ rule. Someone say rule. Now that's a word I would highlight. I'd also highlight some other words in here. He says, let it rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now watch this next statement. Let the word of Christ dwell. Someone say dwell. Dwell in you, say this one with me, richly. So let the word of Christ dwell richly in your life, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever, someone say whatever. Come on, if you grew up in the 90s, we used to throw this one around all the time. I'm not up to date with the modern slang today, but in the 90s, we'd catch some attitude and pff, whatever, right? That was, that was what we did. And look what he's saying here. He's like, hey, hey, whatever you do, you've got options in word or deed. That encompasses quite a bit. Do everything 
in the name of Jesus. Someone say, in the name of Jesus. Oh, there's power in that statement. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so what he does is he lays out these guardrails. And a guardrail is there to keep you on track, to help you maintain your direction and your momentum. And I think in this passage, uh, we find the framework that you can go through life with peace and confidence knowing I am moving in the direction of God's best for my life. And the first thing that Paul would say is you and I have to be ruled by peace. If you are new to the faith and you hang around long enough, what you're gonna bump into is this conversation about peace. You are going to find yourself in interactions with individuals who talk about decisions that they made and they attribute their decision to peace. You're gonna to talk to seasoned couples that are seasoned in their faith and you'll hear about how they started the business or when they bought the home or when they decided to have children or when they decided to uproot and make a transition in their career. And you're gonna hear them talk about their decision and they're gonna say something along the lines of, you know what, we prayed about it and we just had a peace and we moved forward in that decision. Come on, have you ever made a decision moved by peace? And Paul is saying, in this life, you have to be ruled by peace, guided by peace, following the prince of peace. And tragically, we go through life and we subscribe to stress and we subscribe to pressure and we subscribe to worry and anxiety. And what Paul is saying is, no, 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 no. You take your cues from peace. When you find yourself in situations, you ask the question, which direction do I see peace heading in? If I step into this situation and it creates turmoil, I should pay attention to that. But if I step into this situation and it comes with a clear conscience and an easier night's rest, I should pay attention to that. I'm ruled by peace. And if you could do a, a deep dive into that word, you do a word search and you read of it in its original language and you look at what commentaries and scholars say about it. The best way to illustrate it is an umpire in the game of baseball. That's what he's saying by, hey, you're ruled by peace. It's an umpire makes judgment calls based on standards, rules, guidelines, right? And he's saying, you need to let the peace of God make judgment calls in your life according to Godly standards, principles, commands, and God's desires. Let the peace of God rule in your life. And I'm telling you, if you make decisions based on peace rather than pressure, peace rather than anxiety, you will make better decisions. In addition to that, he would say, be rooted in Scripture. Now, if you're not a Christian, you have to know this. If you are in any way contemplating or considering placing your faith in Jesus Christ and becoming a follower of Christ, you need to know there is no substitute for God's word. Folks, no substitute. Do not show up to church looking for man's opinion. If you ever go to a church that does not teach the inherent and infallible word of God, you're in the wrong place. There's no substitute for God's word. And he says two really loaded things about God's word. What were the two words we repeated? Let God's word dwell in you richly. That idea of dwell is, is really profound if you take time to consider it. He's saying, hey, would you let God's word be at home with you? Another way of saying it is would you allow God's word to be true to itself 
in your life. Now, if I were one of those old school Pentecostal preachers, I'd start stomping on some toes in this sermon. Because here's the thing that every single one of us struggles with. There is a temptation and oftentimes a pride where we start to think we're the editors of God's word. And there's certain things in God's word that we'll accept and there's certain things that we won't. And there's certain things that we'll believe in and then there's certain things that we'll edit. And every single one of us has verses in the Bible that we love. And we also have some verses in the Bible that we avoid. And what Paul is saying is, no, you get to a place where you allow God's word to be true to itself in your life. And if you ever get in an argument with God's word and you win, you lose. And I love that because if someone were to randomly show up to Northview on a Sunday and they were to walk into one of our campuses, what are they gonna find? They're gonna find every single one of us dressed in our Sunday's best, hair done right, teeth brushed, cologne on, perfume on. We're gonna look presentable. But if someone shows up at your house unannounced, what are they gonna find? I mean, they might find you in your pajamas. They might find you with your shirt off doing landscaping. They might find you with messed up hair and some stanky breath. They will find you in a really authentic form because there are things or there is a level of authenticity in the home that you don't get in public. And Paul is saying, yeah, that's what I'm after. Let God's word be so authentic with you. Let God's word be so true to itself that it is at home in your life. And then he says, and let it dwell in you richly. In other words, to imply there should be a, a surplus, an excess, an overflow of God's word in your life. And I hate to admit this, but in a lot of conversations that I'm a part of, I walk away thinking, man, a lot of Christians are on a diet, just getting by on crumbs. And if a weekend service is the only time you get a dose of God's word, you're starving yourself out. And if you only subscribe to things that give you a verse of the day, um, that's not gonna cut it if you really wanna live a thriving life for Christ. I subscribe to the YouVersion Bible app. Guys, if you don't have it on your phone, I would recommend it. I think it is a wonderful tool. And I think it comes with a lot of great features that help you study scripture and organize your notes and organize your highlighted items. And one of the features is the verse of the day. And you can you know, share it on social media, it's great. But I'm just telling you, don't just share it on social media. Take a moment to highlight it and read it in its entire chapter. What is God saying here? I want my life to overflow and there to be an excess of God's word in my life. I'm gonna be rooted in scripture because here's what you find. I say this often. Those who stand on the word of God they stand in the storms of life. I'm just telling you, you don't have to go looking for trouble. Trouble knows where to find you. But those who stand on the word of God, they stand in the storms of life. And so you have to be rooted in scripture. In addition to that, you have to be reinforced by praise. So he says, hey, you're admonishing one another in word and in deed, singing hymns and psalms and songs of praise that there's something about our praise that reinforces our faith. 
There's something about our praise that reminds our soul of who our God is. There's something about our praise that operates as a weapon against the things combating our mind. And it reinforces the reality of who our God is. It reminds us of his promises and it creates an atmosphere and a context of appreciation and gratitude in our life. That it, it reinforces us. It reminds us, oh yeah, God's faithful. God's good. And I don't know about you, but I am a, I'm a snob for worship music. I love worship music. And here's the thing. Uh, the more you love something, uh, the more you pay attention to the quality. For example, if you love a good pizza, well, you will be aware of the times you have a bad one. Right? You're, you're, you pay attention to the quality. And people joke on me because I'm an old soul, and I get that. But I just think there are things packed in hymns, things that were written by ancient saints that come with a substance that when it seeps into your soul, it somehow stirs the embers of your faith. And it's like, man, there's doctrine here and there's theology here and there's a weightiness to this song. And it does something that reinforces my life. And so I talk to the worship team often. I tell them, hey, I don't care if the beat's good and I don't care if the melody's right. If it doesn't articulate scripture and if it doesn't declare the promises of God and the nature of God over our lives, I'm just telling you, it lacks the weightiness that our worship should have. And I just love that at all of our campuses, we are just blessed with remarkable worship teams that every single week bring a weightiness to the worship. Everyone's just thankful for the weightiness that they bring to worship. That you're, you're reinforced by praise. And sometimes you need to get into a space and be like, yeah, the world's been telling me a lot of things lately. A lot of things coming my way and I'm bombarded by information and distractions, but I get into a space every single week that reinforces my life with praise. And then this last one, this arguably is the biggest one. Be regulated by honor. Be regulated by honor. All throughout scripture, you'll find this emphasis on honor. Scripture says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Scripture says to never take the Lord's name in vain. And we understand what that means in terms of language, how we take God's name in vain in language. But a lot of times we never think of how we take God's name in vain in lifestyles. In this, he says, in word and deed, do everything in the name of Jesus Christ. That you, you go through life and you run things through the filter of does this honor God? And do you realize how many things, dysfunctional things, would just evaporate overnight if every single one of us just ran our decisions through the filter of does this honor God? If every single one of us made our decisions based on whether or not it honors God, we'd stop lying and being deceitful and manipulative. Anger would go away. Hatred would go away. Envy, pride, lust, all these things would evaporate because we'd get to a decision and we'd ask, hey, does this honor God? And it would clarify our discernment. And I love that. And here's the deal. If you wake up every single day and your number one goal, number one objective and everything I do today, I'm gonna honor God. You know what you're gonna find? You're gonna be a pretty good spouse, a pretty good parent, 
pretty good business owner, co-worker, neighbor, friend, classmate, teammate, you're gonna do pretty well in life. When your aim is to honor God, you find you thrive in all areas of life. And so you are regulated by honor. Does this honor God? Recently, my son Cannon got a bag of candy. Have you seen these? Called Bean Boozled. This is a terrible choice of candy. For the record, Mike and Ike's is the number one candy ever made. And uh, my son decided to go the opposite route. So you open this bag, and here's the problem. You have beans that look alike but taste different. So these green ones, well, some taste like lime, and others taste like lawn clippings. Or these ones here, some taste like peach, and others taste like barf. Or there's this one here, some taste like juicy pears, and others taste like boogers. <laughs> this is a terrible choice, and so it's a game, and you grab in there, and I thought I was getting a pear, and I ended up with a booger. Someone else in our family thought they were getting a peach and they ended up with barf. And so after about three or four chances, you know what we did? We threw the bag away. Yeah. And I think about that because I wonder if the world ever feels being boozled by the church. That one looks like a Christian. I mean, I see them go to church every weekend. They post Bible verses on their social media. I haven't seen their family pray over their meal in public. It looks like a Christian. But what I thought was gonna be delightful when I had an interaction with them was disappointing. What I thought I was going to enjoy, I thought I had to find every ounce of willpower to endure. And what happens when you have a couple bad interactions you throw the whole bag away. And I just think sometimes we, we're getting it wrong. And as people of God, I don't ever wanna be the individual who someone thought was a pear and I gave them a booger and they gave up on the whole deal. Folks, if you're a Christian, you run things through the filter of does this honor God? And so I think sometimes in scripture, these individuals articulated things, and a lot of times it comes with questions. Okay, I get what you're saying, but sometimes if you don't understand what someone meant by what someone said, you have to watch what that someone did. Okay, Paul, you're, you're giving us these guardrails. How did that play out in your life? Now watch this. He goes on to say, well, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, this is huge, pray also for us. Church, one of the best things you can do for your soul is to pray for other people, not just yourself. Be careful of letting narcissism slip into your prayer life, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. He goes on to say that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. And let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is such a fascinating portion of scripture. Paul's saying, hey, whatever you do, you remain steadfast in prayer. And he actually throws some of us through a ringer because he says, 
Remain steadfast in prayer, being watchful in thanksgiving. But I was raised in a tradition that if you open your eyes during prayer, you just voided the whole deal. <laughs> Anyone else, you found yourself in prayer circles peeking, like who's the sinners, who's the heathens, <laughs> right? And he says, hey, be watchful. And you should know, you can pray with your eyes closed, you can pray with your eyes open. You can pray with your hands folded, hands raised, hands in your pocket. You can pray on your feet, on your knees, on your back, on your belly. What God is after is an ongoing dialogue where you and I are constantly leaning in to our relationship with him, amen? And prayer ought to be a first response, not a last resort. I'm just saying, before you talk to anybody about your situation, you ought to talk to God first. And he says, and be watchful. And I love that because Paul's saying, you get to a point in your faith that as you're interacting with God, there's this optimism and this faith that's like, I'm on the lookout. I know God's up to something and I'm not gonna miss it. And I just believe that our God is good and our God is faithful and I'm watching to see what God does next. And he makes this connection between our thinking and our thinking. And he says, hey, just, just be thankful Clothe your thinking with thankfulness. There's something powerful about gratitude. Even the whole psychology community would say, hey, the strongest remedy to grief, gratitude. And so when it's going through life and you have all these things on your mind, you clothe your thinking with thinking. And when you read this passage, there's, there's three things that you have to pay attention to, three things that you have to notice. And the first is Paul's misery. Folks, where's Paul writing this letter from? Prison. Which, come on, at all of our campuses, can we give a shout out to those behind bars joining us today in our church family at all of our different locations? It's amazing. Paul is in prison. He's in a place of misery. And what is amazing is what you find is God will use you at times to encourage people from your place of misery. And Paul writes this letter from a dark place. And it makes me think of mine and Kristen's anniversaries. We uh, made this deal early on that we would celebrate our anniversaries bigger than we celebrate our birthdays. It takes no effort to get older, but it takes a lot of effort to stay married. Folks, she is a handful and a lot to deal with. <laughs> so every year we plan something special for our anniversary and I get to pick something to do and she gets to pick something to do. And comes to our anniversary and Kristen's like, hey, what do you want to do? I was like, I want to go hiking. She said, all right, let's go on a hike. I said, how about you? And she says, I want you to go to a salon with me and get a facial. <laughs> now, gentlemen in the room, wave at me if you've ever gone to a salon and got a facial. Hey, the 11 o'clock is my snooty booty group. Hey, I, I love it because... This is the only other groom that has raised a hand. My brothers, I love you. We go to this salon. I'm completely outside my element. We walk in the doors. I'm high on contact. The aromatherapy in this room was off the charts. These two beauticians, I don't know if that's what you call them, but that's what we're going to go with, come around the counter. And one of them goes, ooh, I get his face. Like she was calling shotgun on the way to the grocery store. You get my face? And I would come to find out that Kristen's porcelain skin is boring, but my big pores are a playground for these girls. 
We sit in these chairs, Chris and I are next to each other. She's over there with cucumbers in her eyelids. And I'm sitting there and the girl working on my face starts going to town as if she's digging for gold with a pick uh, ax, right? Just going after it. She's cranking on my cheeks and she's cranking on my nose and my eyes are closed, but I can feel my eyes welling up in tears. And, I, and I'm doing all this self-talk, hold it together. <laughs> and have you ever had a runaway tear? Like one just escaped on you? I'm in the chair, my eyes are welling up in tears, I'm trying to hold together, and one just gets away from me and makes the slow journey down my cheek. And she leans in and she whispers into my ear, you are so brave. <laughs> Insult to injury. The rest of the time I'm sitting in this chair and I'm thinking to myself, you have got to toughen up. Out here getting your butt kicked by clear still, girl. Toughen <laughs> up. And I say that because sometimes you go to scripture and we're all overwhelmed with our struggles and overwhelmed with our problems. And you should see what happened to me at work. And you should see what my brother just said about me. And you should see what someone said in the comment section of my Facebook post. And we're all, and then we come to a guy in prison. And there's almost this like prompting of like, Maybe we should toughen up. Maybe God included these moments in scripture to give us something to look at and be like, maybe God wants us to emulate this. Maybe when God told Joshua, be strong and courageous, he meant for us to be strong and courageous as well. Maybe God wants us to understand the magnitude of his power and the magnitude of his might. And maybe he does want us to rise up in faith knowing greater is he that's within us than he that's within the world. Come what may, my God is good. And maybe there should be a greater resilience to this faith. And maybe we should operate with a different resolve. And maybe we should step into situations knowing that God is for us. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And that presents the opportunity for us to discover a supernatural power within our life. Maybe, just maybe, we should toughen up. Paul is in a miserable situation and he's doing a remarkable thing. You can't help but see his misery. In addition to that, you have to notice the mystery. I mean, this is such an encouragement to me as a pastor. The apostle Paul refers to Christ as a mysterious God. He says, I just wanna share with people the mystery of Christ. And I hate to let you down, but you should know, I don't know everything about God. And I find it as a great deal of encouragement that the Apostle Paul, the greatest contributor in the New Testament, didn't know everything about God. And folks, here's what you gotta understand. God's not hiding. God's not trying to keep secrets. God has an open door policy. And every single day you can discover more of who he is and his desires for your life. But here's the deal. God is infinitely understandable. So you can go after him today Discover something new in your relationship with Christ. Wake up tomorrow, go after him and discover something new. He is infinitely understandable. He's magnificent. He's remarkable. He's incomprehensible. Our vocabulary is too limited. He is mysterious. And to be clear, this doesn't make him frustrating. This makes him fascinating. 
I love it because Paul articulated such revelatory and weighty explanations of spiritual matters. Yet he too was like, I still can't fully articulate the goodness of this Jesus. I get the feeling Paul would go through life walking down the road, seated at the table, laying his head to rest, sitting in a prison cell. And he would think to himself, I can't explain it, but my God is good. And all I know is this guy showed up, lived a perfect life, and then did a bunch of miracles, grew in popularity, and those who were in authority couldn't stand it. And they joined forces, armies and mobs, religious and government, and they executed him publicly. Everyone's seen him die. They tucked him in a tomb, and guess what? Days later, he apparently came back to life. Rumors started to spread. This little cult began to form, and I was a part of the group that was committed to stomping out the rumor. So much so, I was headed to a town by the name of Damascus and on the way to wreak havoc on this community of believers. I met him myself. He stood before me with breath in his lungs and he didn't smite me and he didn't pull out heaven's javel on me. He loved me, accepted me, called me and is now entrusting me. And I get the feeling Paul would be like, I don't know how to explain it. He's just so remarkably good. And even though my explanations will come up short, I just want to tell everybody about what I've witnessed, seen, and experienced and how he's changed my life. Anyone thankful for a God who's mysterious? He's so mysterious. And just know... You know the preaching's good when a kid's shouting them down. <laughs> hey, you give that mom some credit. Moms are heroes. Come on. <laughs> Here's the thing. We want to figure God out, but the moment you've got him figured out, you settled for a God who is not the God of the Bible. And you've hitched your wagon to an idol. Our God is mysterious. It's It's amazing. And I pray you live every single day with this desire. I just want to get to know him. I want to get to know him. I want to get to know him. I want to get to know him. And I want to tell other people about him. You have to see the mystery. And lastly, you have to see the ministry. Paul's in prison. And what does he pray for? Look at this verse. He says, pray also for us that God, look at this language, may open to us a door for the word. Paul's got his hands in shackles, his feet in shackles. He is being confined in a prison cell, which is being guarded by a soldier. And he thinks to himself, I've got options. Paul, could you be in a more confining space? And he's like, there's a door of opportunity around here somewhere. Scripture says, God works all things together for the good of those who trust him. And if it's not good, God's not done. I'm trusting, I'm seeing what he's doing. And I want in on what he's doing. I've got options. And what does he pray for? Or, or maybe here's a question. What would you pray for? In prison, 
all for preaching the gospel, what would you pray for? I hate to admit it, but I'd be praying for Shawshank, the sequel. (laughs) But here's the deal. Paul wasn't praying to be freed. You ever prayed that God would help you escape your situations? God, get me out of this. God, would you help the pain to stop? God, the inconvenience and the trials that keep coming my way, God, would you free me from this situation? And I know some of you prayed it, and I've prayed it, but Paul wasn't praying to be freed. Paul was praying to be used. And Josh Kale is asking for permission to connect to the TV. (laughs) He's praying to be used. I love that. When you find yourself in a trial, do you pray, God, use me? Use me. And he makes this this statement. He says, pray that God would open a door to us. Now, if you and I are walking down a sidewalk and we come up on a building and I grab the door, I open it for you. But if I'm inside a room and you're approaching the door, I open it to you. That makes sense? He's saying, hey, in this moment, God is doing something and I want in on whatever God is doing. Would you pray that God would open a door to us so we can get in on what he's doing and bring the word of Christ forward? And here's what I've discovered. Doors open for those planning to get Jesus through them. Don't take my word for it. Join a small group. Talk to the business owner in your group who him and his wife decided, hey, we're gonna start this business. And from day one, we're gonna dedicate it to Christ. And we're gonna do everything we can to somehow leverage our business to advance the cause of Christ, support the local church, fund global missions. God's gonna use this business to somehow bring Jesus to the world around us. And hear their stories of how God's opened up doors of opportunity and how God has granted them favor because God knows why you're doing what you're doing. And he pays attention to our motives and doors open for those planning to get Jesus through them. Now I think in life, we tend to approach two doors at times. And to be clear, one is not better than the other. And over time, Chris and I have chosen both at different times. And here's how I would explain it. Sometimes door number one You approach that door, and in your mind, you're thinking, this could be great. I know what to expect. I know the people, the situation. I know the plan. I know the outcome. If I go through this door, this could be great. And there have been times in our lives where we've gone through door number one. And then door number two is if I go through this door, I could be great. I don't know the plan. I don't know the people. I don't know the situation. I fully don't know the outcome, but something in my soul is telling me if I walk through this door, I might discover a plan and a purpose that God has in mind for me. And I might discover a capacity that I didn't know I possessed. And I might discover a skill set. and I might discover friends and I might discover favor and I might discover a level of greatness I did not know I had in my life. This could be great. I could be great. And what's gonna rule your decision? Peace. When you come to those doors, hey, I feel a peace in going in this direction. I feel a peace in going in this direction. One's not better than the other. 
but you need to follow peace through whatever door you're facing. And it amazes me because Paul is in prison. He's praying, hey, pray that God would open a door to us. Do you know how this book ends? With Paul still in prison. No miracle, no like earth shattering moment. And you could almost think, did God open a door to him? But here's the thing. What Paul doesn't realize right now is he's writing a letter to the church of Colossae. And unbeknown to him, in this dark place, the light of Christ is doing something in his life. And this letter is containing the inspired revelation of God. And this one letter is going to be included in the 66 books known as the Bible and the word of God. And unbeknown to him, he's like, hey, would you pray that a door would open to us? And he has no idea that billions of people around the world are going to read what you're saying. It's amazing. You know, it's outstanding. You can read up on what they would refer to as the prison epistles. But to be extremely conservative, if Paul never goes to prison, you and I don't have the book of Ephesians. If Paul doesn't go to prison, you and I don't have the book of Philippians. And if Paul doesn't go to prison, you and I don't have the book of Colossians. I mean, it's amazing. God, would you do something that I don't even know to pray for. And so we look at this passage and it's like, hey, where's Paul? Paul's in prison. But I think when we get to the cafeteria of heaven and we get to have lunch with Paul, I think Paul's like, you know, I thought I was in a prison. Looking back, I was in a prison. I'm just saying, when I look back on life in a dark place, the light of Christ produced something inexplainable and profound in my life. You know the way light hits a prism and produces all those beautiful colors? I had no idea what God was producing in my life. And I think Paul writes this letter and he wants to get one thing across to his people. Folks, I'm still in it. Everyone's wondering, hey, Paul, you're, you're in prison. Like, are you thrown in the towel? Are you giving up? And Paul writes a letter with his hands in shackles. You need to know, I haven't given up. I'm still in it. In fact, this is what he closes with, the final verse of the entire book. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And he doesn't say remember my chains in terms of, hey, feel bad for me. Get me out of here. He says, hey, Remember my chains, follow my example. When life gets hard, you stay in it. When the medical doctor gives you a bad report, you stay in it. When that adult child refuses to pick up your phone call, you stay in it. When that mountain of debt seems overwhelming, you stay in it. When the temptation to continue falling in that addiction continues knocking on your door, you stay in it. And when the temptation to file for divorce continues to bombard your mind, you stay in it. And you rise up in faith despite what I'm going through. I'm still in it. And I know God is with me and I know God is for me. And I know if I remain to the course, I'll discover his purpose. I'm still in it. And I love this. And I feel like I just want to celebrate so many of you who are 
just operating with remarkable faith and remarkable result. As a pastor, I just get so annoyed with some of the things I read that talk about, you know, post-COVID, Christians have walked away from the church and no one's attending church anymore. I'm like, whatever. Because <laughs> you can come to Northview and I'll take you to every single one of our campuses and I'll show you thousands of people who are still in it, still going after God, still trusting him, still adding value to their community. Oh, oh, the next generation, they're nuts. We don't know how to, you know, understand them and they have nothing uh, to do with God and they're completely rebellious. Whatever. I can take you to all of our campuses, to children's programming and youth programming and show you young people who are still in it. And folks, as a community, let's remain faithful and let's remain to the course knowing even when we're down to nothing, God is always up to something. I've got options. I'm still in it. Come on, can I get an amen? amen. I'm still in it. <laughs>